Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. We are off, everybody. I am your host, Michael Ian Black, your literary mansplainer-in-chief. I would like to think of myself as your confidant. Your literary confidant. Um, I don't know what you are confiding in me, but I like the idea of being your confidant. I like the idea that the thoughts in your head as you listen to this podcast are being beamed directly into my head via some sort of plug I have on my neck, some sort of electrical plug, like a, like a little thimble. You know, like Frankenstein has in the movies. I don't know if he has it in the book. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, we are off, right? We're on our journey. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. We took our first steps last time as we discussed the upcoming season, as we discussed what I anticipate being some of the themes for this upcoming season. And look, Some of those themes have already played out between last time and this time because I am in a foul mood. I am bothered and what's that song? Bothered, betwixt, betwixt and bothered. I, I don't know. Some standard, some American standard, but it relates. We were just on a hike out in nature, me, the wife, the dogs, my dumbass dog squash. Uh, you know, went into the creek, fine. But then his paws were all muddy. So we come back and we're trying to wa- wash off his paws, but he doesn't like that. He doesn't like, he'll go into water, but if you decide that you want to put water on his paws, then no, no, that that's a bridge too far. That he cannot abide. So you see the hypocrisy in my dog. It's fine if he puts his paws in water, but you can't put water on his paws. So we're trying to coax him over to the garden hose with milk bones. No, won't do it. Finally, Martha gets him inside, and then I hear her screaming, No! 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 And it's because she's got him in the kitchen sink, and she's trying to wash off his paws, and he's just not having, just fidgeting, uh, and flopping around like a fish and getting everything wet, <clears throat> getting her wet. I I rush over. He gets me wet, causes a big mess. And now, because of nature, I am in a foul mood. I said I ordered a tent last time, which I did. It hasn't arrived yet, but I ordered some other gear too. I'm I've I think I've planned my first camping overnight. With, again, my friend Matt, I think we're going to go in a week or two uh, up to the, 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 the gunks, the saga to gunk. Wait, I'll look. I'll tell you what, it, what it's called. Hold on. Just please stop rushing me. You're rushing me, and I can't have it. It's called the Shawan Gunk Gateway 
compound. And I think we're going to go there. It's up in upstate New York. Maybe I'll record an episode from there as I'm camping. I don't know. Frankenstein, volume one. Letter one to Mrs. Saville, England. St. Petersburg, December 11th, 17- it doesn't say the year. So remember, this book is written in 1818, so I guess this is taking place in the recent past, uh, what the, let's say, the 70s or 80s were to today. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. Um, How is that as a first sentence? Not great, not bad. So-so. I'll call it a so-so sentence. It's boring up until the uh, the last couple words, evil forebodings, which, you know, I like. I mean, if you're going to have a first sentence in a novel, it may as well end with evil forebodings. And I think we already know, just based on this first sentence, that the joy that Mrs. Seville is expected to experience uh, is not going to last right? We already know. Those evil forebodings will come to pass. We know it in our hearts, and as readers, we revel in it. Now look, as I'm discussing the first sentence, I'm revising my opinion of it because I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess it's a good first sentence after all. Somebody was saying, I don't know who said it. I mean, it's probably famous. Somebody was saying like, like a good first sentence should tell you everything you need to know about the novel. And maybe this, this tells us. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. So I guess uh, Mrs. Saville is his, or Saville, it might be Saville, like Saville Row. Saville, I'm going to go with that, Saville. Uh, And increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. I am already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze, which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, ooh, I mean, I'm just sort of struck by that little sentence fragment, inspirited by this wind of promise, which, again, I have limited knowledge of this book. But remember last time we read the introductory remarks by Mary Shelley, and she talks about how they were sitting around in Geneva and they, and, or outside of Geneva, and they were reading ghost stories, and then they decided to see if they could write their own ghost stories. So inspirited by this wind of promise calls to mind to me this idea of ghostly spectral things and the idea of breathing spirit into something, which is, of course, the entire story of Frankenstein. Or so I think. Frankenstein is going to breathe the wind of promise into his Buffalo Bill uh, skin coat that he's going to make out of, you know, all the whatever. I don't know where he finds these body parts. I'm guessing a cemetery or some medical school or something. I'm guessing he sneaks in around and, you know, has a little shovel and digs up old 
all dead things and sews them, sews them together and then inspirits them with the wind of promise, which in, I believe will be electricity. And look, I know I'm not getting very far. I'm not progressing very far at all in the novel, but I think it's worth remembering that electricity as a concept, as an animating force, as something that could be controlled is a pretty new idea right now right? When she's writing this book, 1818. I don't know when electricity first sort of made its way into the home for domestic use, but it was after this. I'm going to look it up. When did people start electrifying their homes? Just as an example. Uh, Well, not for another hundred years. So when did electricity... uh, Let's call it, let's say get invented, which obviously it didn't. But 1879 is when Thomas Edison was finally able to produce a reliable, long-lasting electric light bulb. So when was it first used? 1882. So this is all very new, this idea of electricity. And maybe I'm totally wrong about what happens in Frankenstein. The popular conception, my understanding, is that he animates Uh, the creature with electricity, but electricity as a force to be controlled, that's a, that's a pretty new idea right now. So whether or not that plays out as we move forward through the novel, I don't know, but this inspirited wind of promise, I think can be taken symbolically as electricity. I'm filled with my own electricity right now. It's the electricity of rage towards my fucking dog, which I'm still not over. You know, you get one dog dies. And you think to yourself, oh, that's sad. And it is. And then you think to yourself, how great, because now I don't have to deal with this fucking dog anymore. And the next thing that happens is you get another fucking dog, which is not, which was never my intention. And sometimes, you know, you look, in, you look into his dumb eyes, squash I'm talking about now, and you think, oh, he's really not, so, he's a sweetheart. He really is a sweetheart. I posted a picture of him on Twitter the other day, just a sweetheart. And then he splashes you with water in the kitchen sink and, 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 you get all mad all over again. I have a very short fuse. It's not true, but I have a short fuse when it comes to my wife screaming and the dog. The, that combination of things, I don't enjoy. So I'm now inspirited with that wind. And it's not of promise. Unless it's the promise to put the fucking dog down. That wind of promise, yes. Inspirited by this wind of promise... My daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in preceding navigators. There, snow and frost are banished, and sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. So, I mean, I I think he's talking still about Switzerland, right? I mean, that's where she said it was taking place. Like outside of Geneva, is he just going into the Alps or is he really going further up into up to the Arctic, the North Pole 
area. Hard to say. I don't know if he's being sort of poetical as people are wont to be, or if he's being literal, that he's going much further north than Switzerland. But that's where he's going. Um, and he's excited about it. And he's trying to convince himself that it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible, but he can't quite convince himself. He's like, no, you know what? I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. Maggie, it's going to be great. I know you said don't do it. I know you said you had forebodings of evil, but I'm telling you right now, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be gorgeous. There's going to be reindeer and wooden shoes, and it's going to be a delight. I know they don't have wooden shoes in Switzerland. I know that's not their thing. In Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. Well, I mean, is he really going that far north? The undiscovered solitudes? The phenomena of the heavenly bodies. Does he mean the northern lights? Hard to say. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? I may there discover the wondrous power which attracts the needle and may regulate a thousand celestial observations that require this voyage to render their seeming eccentricities consistent forever. I think he's either talking about magnetism here or electricity. Because uh, uh, the wondrous power which attracts the needle, that, I believe, is magnetism, right? The thing that's true north on the compass, uh, it moves the needle. Um, but the thousand celestial observations, though, that's electricity. I mean, that's, that's starlight. That's, you know, that's light. That's, that's the uh, animating wind of promise. Um, I shall, that requires only this voyage to render their seeming eccentricities consistent for Ever. So he's trying to harness electricity. He's trying to harness magnetism. Hard at this point quite to say, but that's sort of what it sounds like. So this is what we know so far about him. He's got a sister, Maggie, who thinks the dude's fucked. He's of some sort of scientific nature, right? He's voyaging north to do some sort of scientific experimentation or observation. He wants to harness a thousand celestial observations and, and tame their eccentricities and make them consistent forever. So my working model for Frankenstein right now is Elon Musk. Some high-talking dude who probably smokes weed. And that's why, you know, he's full of these big grandiose dreams. And... He doesn't have a lot. He doesn't have Elon Musk's money, I don't think, but maybe he does. I mean, you know, he's got to finance this adventure somehow, and he's looking to harness electricity. Well, who else does that? Elon Musk. Celestial observations. Who's going to space? Elon Musk. I'm just saying, the parallels are there. All right, what do you say we take a little break? Okay, back to the book. I shall satiate my ardent curiosity with the sight of a part of the world never before visited and may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man. So he's going all the way. These are my enticements. He's an adventurer and they are sufficient to conquer all fear of danger or death and to induce me 
to commence this laborious voyage with the joy a child feels when he embarks in a little boat. With his holiday mates, on an expedition of discovery up his native river. But supposing all these conjectures to be false, you cannot contest the inestimable benefit which I shall confer on all mankind to the last generation by discovering a passage near the pole to those countries to reach which at present so many months are requisite, or by ascertaining the secret of the magnet, which, if at all possible, can only be affected by an undertaking such as mine. Okay, so that, that provides some clarity to this journey. He is as much explorer as he is scientist. He's looking for a northern passage. He's looking to cut the travel time for people going back and forth, you know, to, to the States or to Russia, or China, or whatever the, wherever they're going. And he somehow, for whatever reason, thinks he's the man to do it. Now, let's just, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to uh, look up when was the North Pole first found, I guess, or reached. 1909. So we're still, okay, so this is, um, this is well within the dreams of a late 18th century explorer. This, uh, this is starting to make sense a little bit. I mean, we've got another hundred years or so before the North Pole is actually reached. So We've got Frankenstein setting off from London. He's gonna either he's either gonna figure out magnetism, okay, dude, or he's gonna find a passage through the North Pole and cut travel time and and make millions. And he's going to I don't know if he, I don't know if he's motivated by money, but he's going to benefit generations forever. He says so. He's a little full of himself, right? He's a little uh, high on his own supply, and he is. He is setting off on this journey without fear, but with, in fact, delight, because he just knows he's going to be successful. And we know he's not, right? Or he's going to be, or something, something tragic is going to happen. I mean, we know that already. I don't know how we get from journeying to the North Pole to building a skin suit, but we the reader know that that is somehow the journey that we're on. But again, we're talking about the natural world, the North Pole, discovering that, the, the nature of magnetism, how does that work, where, where, what is its source? And we've got this guy trying to pick it all apart and make something of himself. And he's trying to reassure Margaret Saville there in London that all is well. So Let's see. Let's hope for his sake and for ours that all things continue to be well. And you know what? I think they will be. I'm revising my previous opinion. I think everything's going to go swimmingly. I feel very confident about that. These reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter, and I feel my heart glow with an enthusiasm that elevates me to heaven. For nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye. This expedition has been the favorite dream of my early years. I have read with ardor the accounts of the various voyages which have been made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean through the seas which surround the pole. Now, you and I, reader, know that... Um, there is no North Pacific Ocean. There is an Arctic Ocean. But so I assume that's what he's talking about. There is 
an ocean up there. You may remember that a history of all the voyages made for purposes of discovery composed the whole of our good uncle Thomas's library. My education was neglected, yet I was passionately fond of reading. So that's, an, that's interesting, that his education was neglected. Now, is that because they did not have the money or wherewithal to get a good education? Or is it just that he was a ne'er-do-well who lazed about and didn't pay any attention to his schoolmaster? And we know the consequences from last season of paying a little too much attention to your schoolmaster. You end up a dead, emaciated stonemason. So maybe it's for the best that our Frankenstein, our dear Dr. Frankenstein, who I call him Dr. Frankenstein. I don't, there's no evidence to this point that he's a doctor. But, but let's just keep going and then we'll see. He's a self-educated man. He devoured his Uncle Thomas's library on explorers and exploring, got it into his little heart that that's what he was going to do, grew up, and now he's doing it. It is exciting. I'm happy for him. This is a happy letter. These volumes were my study day and night, and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt as a child on learning that my father's dying injunction had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark in a seafaring life. Okay, a little more exposition. The dad died. Uh, the dad said, not for you, Frank. The seafaring life is not for you. I forbid it on my deathbed. Well, this is the first hint of tragedy that we have discovered so far in the book. The first inkling of death. The first time death has made its presence known to us. He suffered the trauma of losing his father to an ailment that we do not know yet. And it is possible that in recreating life, he is, in a sense, attempting to recreate his father. Now, you think to yourself, Michael, you're reading too much into this, but I draw your attention to the futurist Ray Kurzweil, this genius dude who is has devoted his life to um, not bringing back the dead exactly, but forestalling death indefinitely. He's one of these anti-aging dudes. And when interviewed about it, the thing that he kept coming back to time and time again was how he lost his father and all of his work subsequently was meant to, well, uh, yeah, kind of recreate the consciousness of his father. Do you think you can bring back your father in a way that he would have continuity of consciousness? I've got hundreds of boxes of documents and recordings and movies and photographs, and I'm in the process of digitizing all that to create a, an avatar that an AI would create that would be as much like my father as possible given the information we have about him, including possibly his DNA. So Kurzweil himself was on a kind of Frankensteinian, Frankenstonian, Frankensteinian mission and continues to be. Um, and all those tech guys are doing this. All those tech guys are like into life extension because they have billions, but what good are they, right? If you're just going to die. So maybe there's a little bit of that in this. So his dying father said, nope, can't, go, can't have a seafaring life. These visions faded when I perused for the first time those poets whose effusions entranced my soul and lifted it to heaven. I also became a poet, and for one year 
lived in a paradise of my own creation. I imagined that I also might obtain a niche in the temple where the names of Homer and Shakespeare are consecrated. You are well acquainted with my failure and how heavily I bore the disappointment. But just at that time, I inherited the fortune of my cousin and my thoughts were turned into the channel of their earlier bent. Okay, so this is kind of dumb because he's writing to his sister shit that she already knows. Right, that's just a, that's just bad exposition right there. Where you're just like, as you know, I tried to become a poet and failed. As you know, I inherited the fortune of my cousin. Well, we don't know, but Maggie presumably already knows. So he's just sort of repeating for our benefit, which she already knows. It's it's look, it's lazy writing, Mary. Listen, Mary. I'm not going to lie to you. It's lazy writing. There's a, there was a better way to get this, this information out. Mary, what are you doing? Telling us exposition we already know, Mary. Tis a sin what you're doing. Laying out the exposition like this so heavy-handed. Six years have passed since I resolved on my present undertaking. I can, even now... Remember the hour from which I dedicated myself to this great enterprise. I commenced by inuring my body to hardship. I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea. I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, and want of sleep. I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventure might derive the greatest practical advantage. Twice, I actually hired myself as an undermate in a Greenland whaler and acquitted myself to admiration. I must own I felt a little proud, when my captain offered me the second dignity in the vessel and entreated me to remain with the greatest earnestness, so valuable did he consider my services. Okay. So, Mary, what are you doing given all the heavy-handed exposition, Mary, when I told you not to do it? Maggie already knows all this stuff, Mary. Okay, so I feel like we're caught up a little bit on who our Dr. Frankenstein is. He's a self-taught mathematician, purveyor of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventure might derive the greatest practical advantage. He is inured to cold. He can endure famine and thirst. He can bring down a whale if he needs to. This is our Dr. Frankenstein. He's a kind of Elon Musk uh, and Bruce Wayne put together. He can do it all. And he's going to have to, if he is going to discover that northern passage and harness magnetism. He's going to have to do it all. We know that. So the Appalachian doctor might not be, strictly speaking, accurate, although we don't know that yet, but let's call it an honorary title. He is a doctor of all the physical sciences. And now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury. Okay, so they were a rich family. But I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Oh, that some encouraging voice would answer in the affirmative. My courage and my resolution is firm. 
but my hopes fluctuate and my spirits are often depressed. I am about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all my fortitude. I am required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own when theirs are failing. This is the most favorable period for traveling in Russia. They fly quickly over the snow in their sledges. The motion is pleasant, and in my opinion, far more agreeable than that of an English stagecoach. The cold is not excessive if you are wrapped in furs, a dress which I have already adopted, for there is a great difference between walking the deck and remaining seated motionless for hours when no exercise prevents the blood from actually freezing in your veins. I have no ambition to lose my life on the post road between St. Petersburg and Archangel. I shall depart for the latter town in a fortnight or three weeks, and my intention is to hire a ship there, which can easily be done by paying the insurance for the owner and to engage as many sailors as I think necessary among those who are accustomed to the whale fishing. I do not intend to sail until the month of June, and when shall I return? Ah, dear sister, how can I answer this question? If I succeed, Many, many months, perhaps years, will pass before you and I may meet. If I fail, you will see me again soon or never. Farewell, my dear, excellent Margaret. Heaven shower down blessings on you and save me, that I may again and again testify my gratitude for all your love and kindness. Your affectionate brother, R. Walton. Walton is the last name. Not Frankenstein at all. Your affectionate brother, R. Walton. Okay, well that concludes letter one in Frankenstein, and so it may as well conclude this episode. We have learned quite a bit about our, let's call him protagonist at this point, because I imagine that's who he is going to turn out to be. Um, He is an adventurer. He is a naturalist. He is a guy who is setting out to change the world despite the evil forebodings of his sister, Margaret. On the upside, we got through it quickly. We understand who he is. We understand what he's doing. We understand where he's going. And look, that shit's important. Better that than it being drawn out like Hardy did in Jude the Obscure, right? Remember, in the introductory uh, remarks to the book, Shelley says that she doesn't want to write a book that is as kind of uh, overwrought as the, as the novels of her day. And again, Hardy is going to be 70 years later, 60, 70, 80 years later from this. But we already can tell there's a marked difference in language. Mary Shelley is writing in fairly plain spoken language. I mean, the book is from 1818, yet it's very easily understood today. It is not overly wrought or ornate. It is not flowery purple prose. It is just, these are the facts, ma'am, which I appreciate. It's going to make us get through this book in a much easier way without me having to look up random Latin inscriptions and understand random references to Greek mythology. So that's good. I'm not having any trouble with the language at all. Great. I mean, my foul mood has, dare I say, lifted. Dare I say it? I dare. My foul mood has lifted. 
And my own mood has been inspirited by the wind of promise of this book. I'm already enjoying it, which is more than I could say for Jude the Obscure when I first began it. And we were just, he was going on and on about Jude's miserable childhood. Like this book begins with promise. It begins with our adventurer heading north through the vast Russian country, ever north towards the poles. He's going to hire a ship. He's going to have sailors. He's going to harness magnetism. I mean, it's all so very exciting. It's a, it's a galloping thriller right out of the gates. And even though we know, even though we know in our hearts that the ship will ground and flounder or he'll never make it to the port or some tragedy will befall our Walton right now as our novel sets off, as it travels to find its own true north, we are ourselves inspirited by the wind of promise, and I am thrilled to find out what happens next. Tune in next week for another adrenaline-pumping episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. And until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. <laughs>